every night, children across, across the globe way awake in the, uh, sorry, lie awake in the dark. Every night, children across, across the globe, they lie awake in the dark, and they worry, don't they, that there's a monster underneath the bed. And you may have kids going through this at the moment, and even if they're not sort of screaming the place down like the kids in the Pixar film Monsters, Inc., if you've seen that, remember their nocturnal screams power the, the city's supply of electricity. All kids go through it. And although at some stage, as we grow up, we stop checking under the bed, there are other worries that do keep us awake at night. And this fear of monsters, it still sort of captures our imagination, doesn't it? And that's why monsters feature so much in in fiction and in films. You think of King Kong and Godzilla and the Balrog in Lord of the Rings or Jaws, or you think of the English legend of George and the Dragon, and on it goes. Now, where does this fear of monsters, where does this fascination with monsters come from? So are monsters, are they only in the fantasy world, or do they correspond to anything in the real world? Monsters represent our worst fears. Monsters embody our nightmares. Um, our fear of evil. Fred and Rose West may be names familiar to you. They were two of Britain's biggest serial killers. And a book about Rose is called The Making of a Monster. We refer to evil people, don't we, as monsters. But why do people do such evil things? Is there some evil which stands behind it? Well, many suspect there is, and the Bible confirms this, that behind all evil stands the devil, the evil one, the ultimate monster. Now, what do we do with our fear of him? What hope is there in the face of such evil in the universe? Well, that is what the book of, this bit of the book of Job is about. In these final chapters of the book, what's happening is the Lord is addressing Job directly, So in his first speech, if you hear for that, God gave Job a tour of the natural world. And through question after question, God drove home the point that although this wild world is outside Job's control, it is not outside God's. God is sovereign. That was the first speech. And now in this second speech, God shows that his sovereignty extends over evil as well. Evil represented by two monsters. They're called here Behemoth and Leviathan. But before we get to them, God begins with a direct challenge to Job. He confronts his arrogance, and he confronts ours as well, if we ever think that we could do a better job than God, a better job of dealing with evil in the world. If you've got it open there in chapter 40, verse 7, God begins in exactly the same way as he did at the start of the first speech. So 40, verse 7, he says to Job, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. But the first question this time nails where Job was out of line. So verse 8, God says, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Now, this is what Job had been doing. Job had been claiming that God was in the wrong. He had been claiming that God was unjust 
in allowing Job to suffer so much. And Job had been claiming that he, Job, was in the right. And that is not on. We cannot do that with God. You see, when we're suffering, we may have lots of questions. Why questions? Why is this happening and so on? Why is it happening to me? When we're suffering, we may be at a loss to know what on earth is God up to. And we can bring those questions honestly to God and we can bring them to one another, and that is right. But we need to remember, God is God and we are not. God knows best. God is great and God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. He always does what is right. And so if we think God has messed up and I could do a better job than God... Then we've crossed the line, which is what Job had done. Now, Job had suffered much at the hands of wicked people, evil people. Uh, They'd stolen his property. He'd lost all that. They'd killed all his servants. And Job thought that God was unjust for letting this happen. And so in verses 9 to 14 here of chapter 40, God sort of playfully invites Job to have a go at judging the wicked. So verse 9, God says to Job, have you got an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? So God's sort of playfully saying to Job, come on, big man, show us your guns. You know, flex your biceps, show us what you've got, compare them to mine. And let's hear your voice, turn it up to full volume, and now let me raise my voice and let's have a listen. God invites him to try on God's judging clothes. Verse 10, he says, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. God is putting Job in his place and us in ours. To think that we could run the universe better than God, it's ridiculous. We have got no idea what it takes to overthrow the proud, the wicked. But God has, and he will. And so if, like Job, if we have crossed this line, we need to wind our neck in, let him do his job, in his time, in his way. Things may seem out of control to us, but the wicked and all evil are under God's sovereign hand. And that is the point of these two monsters that he introduces us to next. So Behemoth, and Leviathan. Let's have a look at verse 15. Behold, Behemoth. Now, what do we learn about this creature? Well, have a look down there. Firstly, God made him, verse 15, which I made as I made you. Uh, We learn that he's a veggie, verse 15. He eats grass like an ox. Uh, He's very powerful. So, verses 16 to 18, behold, his, his strength is in his loins, his power in the muscles of his belly. Uh, We learn that he's supreme among the animals, verse 19, the first of the works of God. And the God who made him is the only one who can control him and even kill him, ultimately. So verse 19, let him who made him bring near his sword. Whereas in verse 24, no one else can capture him, uh, pierce his nose with a snare. When you get down to verses 20 to 24, it, it seems that this creature is a land animal, who is also at home in rivers. So verse 21, he lies in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. And verse 23, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. Now what does it sound like to you? What animal would you guess 
sounds like, any guesses? What do you reckon it sounds like? Any creature you... Sounds a bit like a hippo, don't you think? It's a bit like a hippo. Um, you know, hippos are herbivores. They chomp through 34 kilograms of grass every night. Uh, they're big and they're powerful, so the third largest mammal on Earth. They're at home on land and in the water. So it seems to fit hippo, except when you get to verse 17. Because verse 17 says, his tail is stiff like a cedar. Well, that's not true of a hippo's tail. His, uh, hippo's tail is sort of short, a little tufty bit on the end. So could it be some dinosaur instead? You know, maybe it's a brontosaurus. We don't really know. But what matters is not, is not exactly which creature is this, but what does it stand for? What does it represent? I put in the footnotes Psalm 68, verse 30. This is where David is referring to God's powerful enemies, and he calls them the beasts that dwell among the reeds. Now, that echoes verse 21 here, doesn't it? It sounds very much like our friend here. This term, uh, behemoth, in verse 15, is actually the common Hebrew word for beast. Uh, But it's here in the plural. So perhaps you could translate it super beast, something like that. It's not just that, it's not just in that psalm that the beast symbolizes God's enemies. You find it elsewhere. So uh, Daniel 7, famous passage, God gives Daniel a vision. It's a vision of the various kingdoms of the earth which rule over people and oppress them brutally. And in the vision, what does Daniel see? He sees four beasts, four beasts. And the beast is used of God's ultimate enemy. So in Revelation 13, the devil's evil associates are pictured as beasts. You have a beast from the land, you have a beast from the sea. And when you get to Revelation 19, verse 19, the beast makes war against the Christ in the final battle. But the sword-wielding Christ defeats him. When you get to Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire where it says the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. It's that kind of unholy trinity. So the beast in Job represents evil, the evil one. And the point is that although he is very powerful and beyond our control, it is under the sovereign hand of God, the creator, and at the sharp end of his sword. The point is that evil, however powerful it is, is no match for God. And in the end, evil will be destroyed. Maybe that's part of the explanation why the dinosaurs went extinct. Maybe it was a lesson that God wrote into natural history about evil. Anyway, speculation. But the point is we, should, we can take heart. We shouldn't despair. But I wonder if another point here is that evil may not always look very evil. So this creature here that we've read about, very powerful, but it doesn't look very scary, does it? So it's eating grass and it's snoozing by the river. And so maybe part of the point is that we need to beware because appearances can deceive. The evil one sometimes dresses up in very ordinary clothes. Hannah Arendt was a philosopher and she reported on the Nuremberg war crimes trials after the war. 
And she focused in on um, one of the guys, Adolf Eichmann. And he was the Nazi who was responsible for organizing the transportation of millions of Jews and others to the concentration camps. And she famously titled her study, she called it, A Report on the Banality of Evil. Now, some of her conclusions have since been questioned, but what is indisputable is that Eichmann appeared to be an ordinary, rather bland, boring bureaucrat. And yet he was the perpetrator of such evil. And she called him in a report, she said he was terrifyingly normal. Beware the banality of evil. The devil and his servants are masters of disguise. And so we need to be on our guard. The charming, articulate, false teacher. The intelligent, persuasive academic. The world with all its wealth and power. But if the first monster appears harmless, the second one definitely doesn't. So here we see the terror of evil unmasked, the Leviathan. Chapter 41 that I read is a long description of a a terrifying sea monster. And we're meant to, from this description, we're meant to see it in our minds, to imagine it, to feel it in all its terror. Seems to be a cross between a great white, a croc, and a fire-breathing dragon, all combined into one. Now, the Leviathan is used symbolically in the Bible for powers of evil. comes up quite a bit. So I put in the footnote there, Psalm 74, 12 to 14. It describes the exodus from Egypt, and it says this. You, God, divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. Uh, Isaiah 27, verse 1, looks forward to the day when it says... The Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Now, if you know your Bibles, serpent, dragon, that's how the devil himself is is described elsewhere. I put down Revelation 12, verse 9. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 2 says this. The dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So Leviathan in Job 41 is a picture of evil and a picture of the evil one, the devil. What lessons do we learn? Well, first one I put on the sheet there, verses 1 to 7, and this is the big lesson, is that evil is within God's sovereign control. Verse 1 of chapter 41. Can you, God says, draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? You know, can you fish for him? Of course he can't, but God can. Verse 2, can you put a rope in his nose and tie him up? No, but God can. Verse 4, will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Never, it's never going to happen. But he will serve God. Verse 5, God says, will you put him on a leash for your girls? Absurd, the thought that you'd, you'd bring it home as a pet for your kids. Verse 6, will traders bargain over him? So he's saying, you know, will fish merchants have him chopped up for sale in Billingsgate? Of course not. Verse 7, can you fill his skin with harpoons? The point is, this sea monster is way, way beyond our power to control or subdue or defeat. But he's not beyond God's. God is sovereign even over evil. 
We saw that, didn't we, back in chapters 1 and 2 with Satan. And that should give us huge encouragement when we're faced with evil in this world, some of it touching our own lives, that God is ultimately sovereign over it. But secondly, in verses 8 to 11, the lesson is don't mess with evil. So God is stronger than evil, but we aren't. We aren't. And Job would not stand a chance against this beast, and nor would we. So look in verse 8, God says, Lay your hands on him, remember the battle, you won't do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false, he's laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. God's basically saying, look, a wise person will steer well clear of this monster, because he's too big for you. And so if we are wise, we won't mess with evil. We won't mess with the devil. Because the devil is far stronger than us, and he is far smarter than us. Sometimes, uh, naively, young people mess about with the occult, don't they? And they have got no idea at all what kind of forces they are opening themselves up to. It's extremely dangerous. But we are playing with fire just as much when we flirt, when we flirt with worldliness, uh, when we flirt with love of money, uh, when we give way to anger, which gives the devil a foothold, Ephesians 4.27 says, uh, when we flirt with sexual immorality or with any sin, it's basically daring to stir up evil. The kind of uh, the destruction caused by addictions. Think of that, addictions to drink, to drugs, to gambling, to pornography. These, the destruction caused by these addictions, it gives us a little glimpse, doesn't it, of the terrifying power of evil, how destructive it is. And so the point is, don't mess. Don't mess. Don't poke the dragon. The destructive power of evil is utterly terrifying. And so we need to keep well away. My dad would uh, tell a story from when he was young. Uh, when he was a boy, he said that one day he was out in a field and he got a stick, a big stick, and he put it into a wasp's nest that was in the trunk of a, a hollow tree. And he gave it a good old shake, and then he legged it. And he and his friend legged it across this field as fast as their little legs would take them. And he said he looked behind, and this cloud of wasps came up and sort of filled the sky. As he and his friend got to the edge of the field and were climbing over a fence, the cloud of wasps caught up with them. And my dad was stung from head to foot on every bit of bare flesh. And his friend next to him didn't get a single sting. Not a single one. Now, he learned the hard way, and the lesson is, do not stir the nest. Don't stir the nest. Don't poke the dragon. Don't mess with evil. Don't play around with sin. But the way God applies it here is a bit surprising. So, verse 10, God says, No one is so fierce that he dares to stir stir him up, that is Leviathan, this monster, Who then is he who can stand before me? So God is saying, if you think this this sea monster is scary, imagine what it would be like to meet me, because I'm infinitely more powerful than this monster. There is a right fear of God that we should have. There is a healthy fear, a healthy reverence 
recognizing God's awesome power and his majesty. Remember Jesus said in John 10, uh, sorry, Matthew 10, 28. He said to his disciples, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's saying fear God. Now, if we fear God, it will move us to love him, to obey him, to serve him, and not to mess with him, not to mess around with him. As Romans 11.22 says, it says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. We need to continue in his kindness, and we need to fear the consequences of not doing that. In verse 11, God continues, Who was first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever's under the whole heaven is mine. Job thought God was not treating him justly, as if God owed him. You know, as if God owed Job a a happy life. But God doesn't owe us anything, is what he's saying here. He doesn't owe us a thing. God does not owe us 70 years with good health and prosperity. He doesn't even owe us salvation. All of it is undeserved, gracious gift. This verse here, verse 11, is actually quoted in Romans 11. And it's quoted at the end of several chapters about God's sovereign choice. That God sovereignly chooses to save some and not others. God is the sovereign creator. He can do what he wants. And he owes us nothing at all. He doesn't even owe us an explanation. So in that passage in Romans 11, it also says, How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. And so we need to accept we're not going to have all the answers, especially about suffering. Back here in Job, uh, verses 12 to 24, God describes the terrifying power of this monster and so of evil. So verse 12, he talks about his mighty strength. Verse 13, he says, who will come near him with a bridle? He's untamable. Verse 14, around his teeth is terror. Uh, Verses 15 to 17 describe the scales on his back. It's like armor plating. Verse 15 says his back is made of rows of shields. Uh, 18 to 21 describes a fire-breathing dragon. So verse 19 says, out of his mouth go flaming torches. And then verses 22 to 24 describe how tough is his neck and his skin and his heart. Verse 22, terror dances before him. God takes the devil seriously. God takes evil seriously, and so should we. So when God pictures the devil, when God pictures evil, he pictures it for us as a terrifying, hellish, hugely powerful, fire-breathing beast. You say, it's no joke. Evil is real. Evil is terrifying. This is the enemy. And there is only one power in the universe that can deal with it, and that is God himself. He's our only hope. And so we mustn't think that we can fight evil in our own strength. We can't. So verses 25 to 29 describe how useless human weapons are against this monster. For example, look at verse 26. Though the sword reaches him, it doesn't avail, saying it's no good, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. So these things just bounce off this creature. Only the Son of God himself could go up against this monster and defeat it. And that is what Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. And when Christ returns, he will finally destroy this monster once and for all. And in the meantime, 
In the meantime, our only hope is to be in Christ. That's the only safe place. We need to be trusting in his salvation. We need to be standing firm in his strength. We learned this recently, didn't we, in our series in Ephesians. We got to Ephesians 6. It's only in Christ, as we put on the full armor of God, that we can stand firm against the devil, against the spiritual powers of evil over this present darkness. The chapter ends, verses 30 to uh, 34. Uh, This monster, representing the devil and evil, is described as the most powerful of creatures. He's thrashing around in the sea, so verse 31, he makes the deep boil like a pot. Verse 33, on earth there's none like him, a creature without fear. Verse 34 ends, he's the king over all the sons of pride. The Bible says that the devil is a spiritual being that God made who rebelled against God and became evil. And he, we learn here, is the king of the creatures. He's immensely powerful. But he is just a creature, whereas God is the creator. And so, although evil is terrifying, Satan cannot go further than God allows. And he will not go on forever. Well, as we close, how should we respond to what God has revealed here? Well, we need to respond as Job did. Job was given a right perspective on God and a right perspective on himself. So he now sees God as he is, and he now sees himself as he is. And that's what we need to see too. So first he sees God in perspective. In 42 verse 2 he says, I know that you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job now sees God as God. All-powerful, sovereign, more powerful than evil. Nothing can derail God's purposes and his plans. And that is something we need to hold on to, especially in the face of suffering. Whether it's suffering in the wider world or suffering in our own lives, that God is sovereign and things are not out of control. And he is working out his purposes and they won't get derailed even through our suffering. When things go wrong in life, we can very easily conclude God's messed up. So what we think, God's messed up, or we think God's forgotten about me. You know, God's, God's busy. He's focusing on other people. He's dropped the ball in my case. You know, God, God's got other things on his mind. He's got bigger things to sort out, like, you know, the war in Ukraine. And so my life is falling off God's radar. We often think like that. But as Jesus said, he said, not even a sparrow dies apart from the will of the Father. And he says, we are worth more than many sparrows. Our lives are in his hands. He's a big God. He's working out his purposes in our lives as he was in Job's. God doesn't mess up. God doesn't drop balls. So we need to see God as he is, and we need to see ourselves as we are, as Job did. In verse 3, God quotes his earlier rebuke to Job. And now Job sees that God was right. So verse 3, Job says, Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me, which I didn't know. You see, Job had been questioning God, he'd been accusing God of being unjust for letting him suffer, but he now saw, he now saw that he was way out of his depth, and he was speaking out of line, and these matters were, were so far above his pay grade. And he was wading into stuff he knew nothing about. 
And so like Job, we need to recognize that there is, there is so much that we don't understand and we won't understand in this life. We're given just a few pieces of the jigsaw. We know only what God has revealed in his word. And we need to trust him for the, for the rest. We need to trust, look, he, he's infinite in wisdom and knowledge, and we are not. Our understanding, our perspective on things, it is so limited, isn't it? It's so tiny. And we struggle even to work out how to fill in our tax returns. So how about we leave the running of the universe to God? Verse 4, Job Job quotes God's earlier challenge to him. And Job now responds in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When, like Job, we see something of God as he really is, we see ourselves as we really are. And we realize how small, how very, very tiny we actually are. And how utterly ridiculous it is of us to big ourselves up and make God small in our minds. How absurd it is to think that God is unfair or God is unloving. How crazy it is to speak as if God was incompetent because of how our lives have turned out. Like Job, we need to repent of any such wrong thinking or speaking. We need to repent of putting God in the dock. We need to repent of accusing God of neglect or injustice. We need to repent of questioning God as to what he's up to. Who do we think we are? In the old Tarzan films, Tarzan would say, me Tarzan, you Jane. It's like God is saying here, me creator, you creature. Or me God, you human. And Job gets that now, and he realizes how out of line he he was, and we need to get it as well. Because only then will we relate rightly to God, and only then will we respond rightly in times of suffering. Well, we live in a fallen world in which evil is real, it's terrifying, but this is saying, look, God is bigger, he is bigger than these monsters. In Christ he's defeated them, and ultimately he will destroy them. And in the meantime, he calls us to trust him, to stick close to him with our unanswered questions, and especially, especially in times of suffering. And if we do that, we won't need to lie awake in the dark, worrying, anxious, scared of what's under the bed. Instead, we can get a good night's sleep. We can say with David in Psalm 23, verse 4, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on what we've heard, maybe to uh, to pray in the quietness of our own minds and hearts, and then we'll pray together.